Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you want to speak to us today. And we really pray, Lord, that you would meet us in these pages, that we would come to understand more of who you are so that we might love and worship you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> imagine the headline, future king ticked off and tooled up. And underneath, in slightly smaller lettering, local woman Abigail appeases avenging army. You might think, well, that's pretty impressive for one person. And you'd be right, I could learn a thing or two from her. And hopefully we will. But what I want us to avoid is oversimplifying this story and boiling it down into Abigail's three-step conflict resolution plan or something like that. What, what I'd like us to consider today is, what is it about Abigail's mindset which makes her an effective peacemaker? Remember, we're in this series about peacemaking, aren't we? What is it about Abigail's mindset which makes her an effective peacemaker? And what does that mean for us? Just for a bit of context here, um, David at this point is not yet king. <clears throat> He's been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be king, but he's not yet king. Saul, the current king, uh, wants David dead. So David is spending his time and earning his money with about 600 of his men, um, protecting the land, the livestock, the servants of uh, local rich people. And so that's where we pick up our story. And I'm conscious that, that was a long reading, so I'm just gonna give you a real whistle-stop tour of, of the story. Um, and I'm pronouncing this, man, this man's name as Nabal. I, that's how I've got it fixed in my head, so apologies if that's wrong. So Nabal is a rich, surly, mean, and wicked man. David and his men have been working to protect Nabal's land, livestock, servants. And at the right time, the passage says, David speaks life over Nabal's household, he sends his servants to go and request payment for services rendered. And Nabal, in, in his uh, unwise moment, refuses and actually is quite insulting to the servants. So the servants go back and report what's happened to David. And now David speaks death over the household of Nabal. And he and 400 of his men uh, get their weapons and head off to avenge this incident. Now, a servant tells um, Abigail, Nabal's wife, about what's happened. And so she um, sends some gifts on ahead to David and she goes out, meets David, and is able to persuade him not to hurt anyone. She doesn't tell Nabal until the following day what she's done because she knows that it's going to upset him. And it upsets him so much, in fact, that his heart fails him. And ten, about 10 days later, he dies. And then uh, Abigail and David marry. So that's the story in a nutshell. So let's think about this from um, Abigail's perspective. She's married to a rich man, so in many ways her life could be quite comfortable. But he's uh, a wicked, mean and surly man, we're told. In fact, he's so difficult that when it, the servant sees that disaster is looming, the servant finds it easier to go and speak to Abigail than to speak to his master. 
And Abigail, get this, finds it easier to go and speak to David, who might kill them all, and an army, than to go and speak to her husband, to try to reason with her husband. So just a little reflection here. Do we get so entrenched in our own position that we struggle to hear reason? We need to just watch out for that, don't we? Now, we know from the um, passage that the threat that David makes is towards all the men in the household. But Abigail doesn't know that. So for all she knows, as she goes out to try to speak to David, he may well kill her and then go on ahead to the household and kill her family and servants as well. So there's a, there's a very real and genuine threat. She doesn't know how this is going to pan out, but what she does know is if, if she does nothing, people will suffer. So having set our scene, let's think about this question again. What is it about Abigail's mindset which makes her an effective peacemaker and what does that mean for us? And we're going to look at five P's. Posture, profit, perspective, pardon and pattern. Now, some of you might well be thinking, June, we all know that any good sermon's got three points. Um, but don't worry, some of these are going to be quite short, so if you're worried about your parking or the roast or anything, it'll be fine. So, posture. As soon as Abigail sees David, she gets off her donkey and she bows down. Now, that's a really vulnerable position to be in, in front of someone who might want to kill you. But that's what she does. She humbles herself. Now, she could have gone into that situation playing the grand lady, a bit like um, Maggie Smith's uh, dowager in Downton Abbey. Do you know who I am? How dare you? I demand that you stop this. But she, she doesn't do that. She doesn't make any demands. Neither does she defend herself. David, you don't understand how difficult things are. She doesn't do any of that. She humbles herself. Now, for us, whether we're in situations of conflict ourselves or whether, like Abigail, we're a bit of a go-between, I think this is a helpful question to ask. What's my posture in this situation? How can I metaphorically get off my donkey and bow down? Humility has to be a significant part in peacemaking. So that's our first point, posture. The second point is profit. I don't know whether anyone here has done conflict resolution or negotiation training, but they look at um, different kind of outcomes that, that you might have from a particular situation. So you might have a lose-lose, I lose, you lose. Um, and sadly, that's often how things end up. Or you might have a lose-win, so I lose, but you win. And in our weaker moments, that might be what we're after in a situation. Um, but the optimum outcome is I win, you win. And bearing in mind that Abigail doesn't know what's going to happen here, for all she knows, this man, David, might end up killing her. For all she knows. I think what she does is quite remarkable. She thinks about what will be a win for him. What will profit the man who might want to kill her? It's really quite remarkable, isn't it? Now, 
I think when she's, she probably was thinking this as she's, as she's traveling out to see him. And what she realizes is it's not going to be in David's best interests to kill loads of people. She even talks about um, not having on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. And she's not just being manipulative here. It's as though she's symbolically standing next to David with both of them looking towards his future and her painting a picture of what will profit him. What will be best for David? Now, most of us understand the principle of thinking about what will profit someone else. But even the thought process is really difficult, isn't it? Let alone actually taking those steps. It requires us to lay down our sense of entitlement or um, indignation, self-justification, to step out of that and to actively step into a more generous thinking space. It's hard. It's really hard. But what if we could do that? What difference would that make? So, posture we've had, profit we've had. The next one is perspective. When we're in the heat of things, we zoom in and we lose perspective. We lose our peripheral vision. Now, I think one of the things that makes Abigail an effective peacemaker in this situation is that she retains perspective. She's able to see the wider picture. And she helps David to gain perspective. She does that by reminding David of God's promises. Don't we so often lose sight of what God has promised us in the midst of, in the midst of challenges, when things become heated and difficult? Now, and I want to... <laughs> a little... Um, side point here. When we're talking about God's promises, I think it's really important that we focus in on what God really has promised us in the Bible, um, rather than plucking things out of context. I think there's a bit of a danger when we pluck verses out of context and behave as though God's directly promised those to us. Sometimes it's, it, you know, it's fine, but other times it can create um, a picture where God turns out to be a liar because he doesn't fulfill that thing. Worst case scenario, things get really distorted. So think of um, The Handmaid's Tale as a really good illustration of what happens when we take verses of Scripture and really distort them. Um, so when we're thinking about God's promises, what has he really promised us from Scripture? But when we start to bring to mind God's promises, we think about forgiveness, acceptance, cleansing, adoption, being loved, being secure in him, eternal life, being co-heirs with Christ. When we think about God's promises, we gain perspective. We see the wider picture and it's glorious. It's really, really helpful. If we can make our decisions and determine our behavior based on our future hope, we're on a much better path. Our future hope can make our current offences, the things which are currently upsetting us, perhaps feel a little bit less powerful. So, Abigail reminds David that 
God has promised David will be king. God has promised that David will have success. So bearing all of that in mind, does David really want this needless bloodshed on his conscience? And likewise for us, when we look to our future hope, perhaps it means that some of the things we're encountering now lose just a little bit of their potency. So we've had posture, profit, perspective. Next point is pardon. Abigail asks for pardon. We don't see this in the fullest sense in the NIV. Um, This is verse 24 if you wanted to have a look at it. So it reads, She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Now it sounds as though she's apologizing for having interrupted his day. But other versions translate that verse slightly differently. So for example, the ESV translates it like this. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. On me alone, Lord, be the guilt. Now, I'm in no doubt that it's Nabal who has committed this offence. It's not Abigail at all, is it? And yet here she is taking responsibility for something she hasn't done. It's an interesting move. But she knows Nabal is not going to do it. He's not going to make the effort to try to make peace. He's not going to take responsibility. He is utterly immovable in that situation. In fact, for all the effort and work um, that Nabal's going to do to gain pardon, he may as well be dead. He's really not engaged in that at all. So, Abigail takes responsibility for the sake of those in her care. Now, I think we're often so emotionally fragile that when it comes to taking responsibility, we cover things up, we blame somebody else, we justify our actions, anything to avoid facing our imperfections. It's really uncomfortable to face our imperfections. So, How far from our current mindset would it be to take responsibility for something that we haven't even done? The book, um, Miracle on the River Kwai, I don't know, how many of you have heard of this book? It's perhaps an older... Okay, so this might be brand new information. (laughs) Uh, The book, Miracle on the River Kwai, was written by Ernest Gordon, about his experience of being captured by the Japanese during the Second World War. And he was used as part of the forced labour to build the railway through Burma. And the men lived in just awful, squalid conditions. They were starving, they were malnourished, um, sickness was rife, it was j- they were exhausted, it was just an awful, awful situation. And Gordon describes that, really, other than your best friend, you didn't really much care what happened to other people. You just got to that point where you felt pretty dead inside. You just didn't care what happened to other people. And he recounts the point where all of that changed. He says, at the end of each day, the tools were collected from the work party. On one occasion, a Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing and demanded to know which man had taken it. He began to rant and rave, working himself up into a paranoid fury and ordered whoever it was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die, all die, he shrieked, cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. 
at that moment, one man stepped forward and the guard clubbed him to death with his rifle while he stood to attention. When they returned to the camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. One man took the blame for something he hadn't done for the sake of his fellow prisoners. And in that one act, things began to change in the camp. People started treating one another with dignity, with love. When people died, they gave them a proper funeral. Many people came to faith because that man who died was a Christian. We, actually, we don't even know his name. He was a Christian and he died taking the blame for something he hadn't done for the sake of other people. Now, not every situation will require us to take responsibility for something we haven't done. But at very least, we have to take responsibility for the things we have done. What's my part in this difficulty? Okay, so we've had posture, profit, perspective, uh, pardon, and our next one then is pattern. What is it about Abigail's mindset which causes her to be an effective peacemaker? Well, Paul in his letter to um, the Philippians, puts it like this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Abigail's mindset makes her an effective peacemaker because she follows the pattern of the ultimate peacemaker. If we work back through our peas, I think we'll see some of this. And I, I really pray as we do this that we see something of the beauty of Jesus in this. So we think about posture. Jesus humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant for us, for us. Profit, he looked to our profit, what will benefit us rather than his own profit, even while we were his enemies. He wants the very best for us and he's willing to die to achieve that. Perspective, now we know that Jesus was looking ahead um, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus held that perspective. Pardon. Jesus was obedient to death on a cross, which is a criminal's death. He took responsibility. He took the blame, the punishment for the things that we've done so that we can be pardoned. 
Earlier on, we thought about how Nabal made um, so little effort to try to gain pardon that he may as well have been dead for all of his um, efforts, his attempts at, at doing that. While we were dead in our sins, unable to plead for ourselves, Jesus stood in the gap for us to obtain the possibility of pardon for us. Abigail follows the pattern, the mindset of Christ. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that our starting point has to be always to recognize that we are in need of the ultimate peacemaker, the one who made peace between us and God. So when some of those things are difficult, um, when we feel justified in our position, when we feel entrenched, uh, when we really want to point the finger of accusation at someone else, when we're committed to seeing that other person as the villain, we can look to Jesus. We see the agony of the cross. He didn't deserve that. We see the beauty of his sacrifice. And we don't deserve that. We are all sinners in need of a saviour. When we really face the truth, we recognise that we've no right to take these positions of self-justification or um, indignation. When we see something wrong in someone else's life, rather than thinking, hmm, I'm better than that, I'd never do something like that, a more truth-based response would be, oh, you're grappling with sin? Me too. So when we struggle to look to the interests of those who might have harmed us, when everything within us wants to accuse other people, we can look to the cross. The glorious truth is, as we fix our eyes on Jesus and bask in all he's done for us, just like the prisoners in Burma, we can find release from self-seeking and freedom to live and to love in a better way. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much that you've made a way for us to know you, that you've made a way for us to be able to obtain pardon and to live in peace with you. And Lord, would you help us where you've pointed um, to things in our lives, you'd help us to make changes or to be, um, to be attentive to your leading, Lord. Um, help us to be soft-hearted and, uh, and able to be moulded and manoeuvred to go in the direction that you would have us go. Lord, we invite you to come into our lives afresh to make the changes that you would want to make, um, to challenge us where you would want to challenge us. Help us to live in a way which is pleasing to you. May our lives be um, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.